0: You guys basically ship meals to people. So you're shipping food. What What was the first version one or version 0.1 or the first minimal sort of viable product that you guys shipped out? What was that like? Is that something like you guys put in a Ziploc bags yourselves? Like how, how did you kind of test the concept in the very, very early stages? Yeah, so the very
1: first delivery we ever did, which was in August of 2012, was me and my two co-founders in a tiny little kitchen in Long Island City Um, going to the grocery store, uh, buying a bunch of food, packing it ourselves, and sending it to, you know, a couple of the friends we begged to try our product. We are right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads, and the future is completely within our control. We're living through The single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time
0: for us to just really take charge. That's what
1: revolutions
0: do. They enable the impossible.
1: You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show, produced by Dave Gerhardt. I'm Mike Volpe, the CMO of HubSpot. And today, I'm joined by Matt Salzberg, the founder and CEO of Blue Apron. Matt, thanks a ton for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you for having
0: me. Uh, Really happy to be here. For the folks that don't know, uh, what is Blue Apron?
1: Yeah, so Blue Apron, uh, we're an e-commerce company, and uh, we deliver ingredients uh, and recipes to people all over the country to help make incredible home cooking accessible for everybody.
0: Fantastic. I've actually been, I I am a customer. Uh, My wife and I have cooked a few meals ourselves. It's delicious. It's good stuff. Um, So I definitely recommend for folks to check it out. Tell us a little bit more maybe sort of about the, the growth. I mean, you started off early in your career as a venture capitalist and now, you know, you've started a company and you're, you know, shipping meals to people like, you know, I think actually over a million meals a month, I heard last heard you were up to. So what, what was that transition like to go from the investing side to the operations side? Any kind of big, interesting lessons there? Yeah. So, I mean, my
1: entire uh, career, I've actually always wanted to start my own company, um, you know, even right in college. Actually, my favorite job I ever had in college was I ran a student-run laundry service, uh, which was something I really loved to do. Um, and then after college, you know, I went in, into the, the investing world. I was at Blackstone Investor um, doing you know private equity and growth investing. And you know, the you know those are great jobs, but running a company is obviously totally, totally different. Um, you know, when you're on the investment side, you spend a lot of your day uh, networking and thinking and um, being exposed to lots and lots of unrelated matters and spending a little bit of time on lots of things. And obviously, when you start your own company, you're spending lots and lots of time on one very specific thing, which is your company. And so um, that's a big change, obviously. And then the other biggest change about, you know, uh, being at a company, obviously, than being an investor is just dealing with people and employees and, and you know, probably, uh, most of my time now is focused on uh, you know, company. you know we've grown so fast we have over 1,200 people at our company and we're a two and a half year old company. So um, you know scaling and growing and attracting talent and and um, you know the people side of things is a is a huge amount of your day. When you're an investor, there's literally no people side to your job. You're you're like you know your job is to read reports and you know, network a little bit and then, you know, invest in companies, which is not a, uh, it's a little bit people intensive, but it's, it's nothing like having your own company, obviously.
0: Yeah, you know, it's its really interesting because I'm i am on the board of directors of a company, uh, it's called Repsley, it's a you know, mobile app for uh, field activity management, and I, it's really, it's interesting because there's other people on that board that have only had mostly had investing experience, some have had operational experience, and I, you know, my day job, like I run the marketing team at HubSpot, so I, I think in some ways as an investor, you can, can kind of forget that it's so hard to get anything done in a company because it's not just like you walk in and be like, oh great, we're just going to do these five things. Like, awesome. Like you have hundreds or dozens or thousands of people sometimes that you need to like affect that change with. And it can be like the whole people side of things is so much more difficult than I think people give it credit for unless they've done it, you know?
1: Yeah. It's really easy when you're on the investment side to take execution for granted. You sort of See a concept, see an idea, and then think it's inevitable, you know, and that all of a sudden the entire world is going to change around some concept or idea. And you know, ideas are really powerful things, but um, you know, management teams being able to execute on those ideas are uh, you know even more powerful. And so um, you know, it's it's actually a it's 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 a lot of work to you know build a company, and not everybody can do it the same. And so execution is 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 a critical component, obviously.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. It's like I always hear from people that, you know, I'd rather have a B strategy and A execution than, you know, sort of the other way around, right? Because without the execution, it just doesn't really matter. So, yeah, that's a, I think, a, a big a big lesson that a lot of people learn as they get on the operational side.
1: Yeah, hopefully
0: you have both. Well, right. Hopefully it's an A and A, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. So what I, what I want to wind back, so you guys basically ship meals to people. So you're shipping food. What, what was the first version one or version 0.1 or the first minimal sort of viable product that you guys shipped out. What was that like? Is that something like you guys put in a Ziploc bag yourselves? Like how how did you kind of test the concept in the very, very early stages? Yeah, so the very
1: first delivery we ever did, which was in August of 2012, was me and my two co-founders in a tiny little kitchen in Long Island City um, going to the grocery store, uh, buying a bunch of food, packing it ourselves, and sending it to you know a couple of the friends we begged to try our product. <laughs> um, you know it was literally just the three of us. We did all the work. I think we had maybe twenty customers our first week, and um, you know that that was our initial test bed. And you know it was a very scaled down version of what we offer today. We had you know um, only three recipes. We only delivered to a small little group of people in Manhattan, obviously, rather than to the entire country. You know where we deliver today. Um, and uh, you know, we didn't have the same kind of choices that, that we have today. Um, but it was, it was pretty eye-opening to see that. I mean, I think we thought from the beginning that we had a product that people would really like, but in the, you, know, you can sort of see the excitement in the eyes of our early customers that you know, and through the feedback that we got that this wasn't just something cool or interesting, that it was a highly emotional and engaging experience for them. If you think about food and dinner, it's such an important part of our culture and our society. And that family home-cooked meal is is really emotional for people. You know, people cook together. They bond at at the dinner table. It's it's one of the more personal products you can imagine delivering to someone. You know, you're physically consuming our product. And so, um, you know, that emotional excitement that we've enabled people to cook great meals that they otherwise couldn't have cooked on their own. Um, got them excited. It was pretty obvious to us that, that um, you know, we had that right away. and That gave us a lot of confidence to
0: think that the product would scale. Did you, char- did you charge those early customers? Were they paying or were they just sort of beta testing the concept?
1: Actually, you know, day one we had people paying. I, the customers, the friends that we begged to try the product, we didn't cut them a break. They actually paid for it. So, uh, you know, right from the beginning uh, we did that. You know, we're not like a SaaS software company or something like that where, you know, we're like this new concept and you have to really, um, you know, convince people that uh, what, our, what our value to them is. I think, you know, we're fortunate because we're delivering original recipes and all the groceries and ingredients you need to cook those groceries in the right amounts. And so, you know, it's not a foreign concept um, to people. They get right away what we do and what the value would be to them.
0: People are used to paying for food, basically. Yeah,
1: you know, already today, people obviously buy food.
0: We're just making it more convenient
1: and more fun for them. And so, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, that's it's it's an easy sell um, in that sense.
0: And and so now, so you've gone from packing, you know, twenty meals or whatever in your own apartment and then delivering them to. I think you just opened a huge new distribution fulfillment center in New Jersey which I think was like 10 times bigger than the last one that you had. How, w- talk to us about that growth. And you just mentioned, I think you had you know, 1,200 employees or something. I mean, it just, it, that amount of growth in a very short period of time, what was, and you mentioned sort of the people challenges, what was like the, what didn't work? Like what broke along the way?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, truthfully, the hardest thing for us along the way has been keeping up um, organizationally with the customer demand, um, you know, our business grew much faster than we ever expected. And we didn't uh, properly plan far enough ahead from a hiring perspective. And so, um, you know, we got a little bit behind um, just keeping the, you know, the staffing of our organization with the right number of people. And so, you know, we had a lot of folks who were taking on a lot, a lot of responsibility um, really quickly uh, to try to help us, you know, accommodate that growth. And that actually worked well in a lot of cases for, you know, a lot of folks that we had that were sort of, you know, young general athlete types, a little bit earlier in their career, they're getting a lot of responsibility with um, big, big, meaningful uh, parts of our business that they otherwise wouldn't be able to get in other companies. And in other cases, it didn't work so well. Um, you know, where uh, we needed more experienced managers. And so, um, you know, just really keeping up on the recruiting side and keeping up on the organization side has definitely been. You know,
0: yeah, uh, let's talk about that hiring and people side because I, I think we've seen a lot of that, those same lessons here at HubSpot as we've grown. We, you know, one thing that I've seen is that occasionally, you know, demand really explodes and you're behind in hiring maybe a, a specific function. You know, for us that might be customer support or something like that, where all of a sudden you get a bunch of new customers sign up and you're understaffed because you don't have enough of those people in that particular role. The other thing I think we've seen is what you're talking about, which is that as the company grows, the amount of responsibility, you know, someone in maybe kind of a junior management role might have, really just the amount of responsibility they need to take on really explodes. And then either, like you said, you know, that's a huge career boost for them, or occasionally the opposite happens, and like the company actually grows faster than the person's able to grow their own career. And then you need to you know figure out that and sort of recognize that. Like, how any tips for people for when to sort of see for those last two examples of either you know someone who is able to grow into the role versus someone where the company actually grows faster than they're able to keep up with? Or, you know, for some you know for a C level person to like start to think about how to identify which which path it's going to happen. You know, as you start to grow for certain different high, for different people on your team.
1: Hard to say, Uh, I don't think there's a formula for it. You know, I think you know pretty quickly, um, you know, when people are able to step up to the job. In a lot of cases, uh, a lot, you know, people already have the skills they need to take on bigger and bigger roles, and it's just that they're so early in their career they've never had the chance to rise to the occasion, and no one's ever given them the responsibility. And So usually when those really high-performing people are given that responsibility, they just pretty naturally rise to the occasion, and, you know, you might not expect it, and you're then really, really impressed. Um, but I think then you notice it because they're performing, um, you know, and then, you know, there are folks who got put in that situation that, that don't do as well. Um, you know, I think it, the, the non-performance also, you know, becomes an issue and pretty obvious too. So we don't have a specific framework, but I think um, it's sort of trial by fire, right? And, and uh, when you get a lot of responsibility, you know, it's, it, it, you know, the, the cards kind of fall as they will and you, you see pretty quickly, uh, you know, how people are doing.
0: I, so I feel like sometimes what you can do is sort of hire, ahead of the current needs of the business just planning that in the next you know year or two you're going to grow a huge amount right and there's times when you know I've brought somebody into my team at HubSpot maybe today they're managing a 20-25 person marketing team but that particular job at HubSpot is only three or four people but I know it's going to grow over the next couple of years and maybe over hire for the role today and then there's other times where I feel like we sort of look at someone we say yeah you know you haven't done this job yet, but we think you have an opportunity to grow. Do you, do you have a preference between those two? Is there one that you've sort of done more? Have you kind of hired ahead of the current role or you have sort of someone that you really expect to grow in? Do you guys have a, a philosophy on that? We've done a mix.
1: And, um, you know, like I said, our biggest hurdle in growing our company as fast as we have has always been just getting our hands on great people. And so, you know, when you're starting a company and you don't have unlimited access to everyone on the planet, you got to do the best you can with what you have. And so, um, you know, you sort of look at each, we've looked at each situation and said, you know, what's the right course of action here? And, and, you know, you're opportunistic about um, kind of, you know, based on the people that you have, um, you know, doing, moving as quickly as you can and doing as best as you can with limited resources. And so, you know, um, it's always in some ways better to promote and hire from within, you know, if you can, um, and and certainly, you know, we'd love to do that. And in all the cases, we can have the opportunity to. And, and in some cases, you just don't have the luxury of, of waiting for that. So, um, you know, like I said, I think when you're in a really high growth environment, you got to make the best, you know, it's, it's about making trade-offs. And, and it's about doing the best you can with what you have at the time.
0: Talk to, talk to us a little bit. shift gears and talk a little bit more specifically about what drove the growth. So it seems like part of it was you sort of latched onto this, latent customer demand where customers just, you know, really loved what you were doing. But beyond that, what were the key things that you really felt like sort of really started to drive the growth? Were there any kind of specific, you know, things that you did in terms of marketing or in terms of product or in terms of the overall experience that you felt like really kind of drove that growth?
1: Yeah, well, I think, you know, like I said before, the, the most important thing is that our product's an emotional product that's an integral part of people's home lives, And so the experiences that they're having, cooking with their husbands, wives, children, you name it, created these natural customer experiences and high uh, emotion and affinity for what we do. And so um, we grew very virally and still grow very virally because of that high customer engagement and um, easiness to explain our product. People tell other people about what we do. They talk about their shared cooking experiences Um, the wonderful meals they're able to learn about and create. And so, um, you know, referrals are huge for us. Social media is is really big for us. People, you know, our product is participatory. Our customers are cooking our product and they are creating their dinners, not us. And so, um, you know, when a customer gets a great recipe from Blue Apron with some really interesting ingredients or interesting technique that they haven't cooked with before, they take a photo, they share it on social media because they're actually proud of what they've created and we're helping our customers, you know, cook these great things at home. And so, um, you know, I think the participatory nature of what we do and the emotional nature of what we do just makes it a a really good candidate for social media and referral like marketing.
0: Awesome. Talk to us a little bit about, like, you've grown so fast, the employee of a lot of employees, you know, 1,200 now. Talk to us about the cultural side like how, you know it's got to be that the culture of the company has sort of changed and evolved from you know a few people working in a small office to now multiple fulfillment centers and the, you know, I, uh, let's talk about that for a minute and then I have a, a, a couple other things I want to follow up on that because I'm really fascinated by the cultural side of growth. Yeah, well so you
1: know we're an interesting company. so we have a really small corporate office still. Um, you know let's say a little over hundred people in our corporate office. And we have, uh, and then we also run fulfillment centers around the country, where we have, you know, hundreds of workers who help um, in the portioning, packaging, and shipping of, of ingredients around the country. And so, in our corporate office, it actually still feels like a really, really small place. Um, and you know, we do a lot of really fun and interesting uh, things to continue to maintain a tight culture. And uh, you know, uh, engage with our mission and values. You know, obviously we've we've created mission and value statements um, a- as part of an exercise we did with all of our employees um, to really codify what we care about, and we we you know ask questions and interview processes around those and incorporate those into our performance reviews. We um, you know bring in and do tons of events to help educate our employees around issues in food. And cooking, um, you know, we have our suppliers come in and hold regular events where they talk to our employees about their businesses and how we're making an impact on their businesses, and also about the culinary side of the products that they create. So our customers can learn about food, and you know, lifelong learning is actually one of our core values. And in particular, you know, our brand represents lifelong learning because chefs around the world wear blue aprons when they're learning to cook. And so for us, it's a symbol of lifelong learning and cooking. And so we try to incorporate that into all the elements of our culture and what we do, both from a business and product perspective. Um, you know, and, and we try to build a culture of really tight-knit people who you know like being with each other, both inside and outside of work. Um, you know, because we want people to enjoy working here just in and of itself, for the sake of working here. Um, and so you know, we've done a lot of those
0: things as we've grown. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up sort of the difference between the corporate office and the fulfillment centers, because one of the things I'm fascinated by with companies is when they have kind of different types of employees and like how that affects the culture. So I could imagine in the corporate office, you get 100 people. I bet you they're all, you know, highly educated in general, right? You probably have somebody with an MBA from Stanford in your marketing team. You probably got somebody with a master's from MIT on your technical team. And then I would imagine the folks in the fulfillment uh, centers probably, you know, a lot of them maybe didn't go to college or whatever, things like that. How do, you, do you try to have a cohesive culture between the fulfillment centers and the corporate office? Or do you, you just sort of say, you know what, they're in different locations, they're accomplishing different goals, and we want to have a good and productive culture in both, but we actually expect the culture to be different? How, how much do you try to have kind of one culture versus, you know, trying to optimize the culture based on the role of the, of the employees?
1: Well, you know, in in many ways, the culture is similar. You know, we have have one set of standard values for everybody. We have one mission for everybody. You know, um, we like to communicate with everybody on a regular basis. And so we hold events at our fulfillment centers and at our corporate office where we share information about developments at the company on a regular basis and answer people's questions so that they're informed. Um, And so we do all those things for everybody. Um, you know, and we're all built around this common mission of making incredible home cooking accessible for everybody, and so everyone is very passionate about the same things. Um, you know, but there are obviously some differences too, um, just by the very nature of the work, obviously. And so, um, you know, we do, you know, we have a different pay structure in our fulfillment centers, obviously. Uh, you know, we have um, different nature of the work that they do, um, and so you know, it is a little bit different. Um, but, you know, we try to have an overarching uh, mission and values that are that are common among everyone.
0: All right. Uh, easy one, or maybe, actually, it might be a hard one for you. What's your favorite Blue Apron meal? You know, that is a really tough
1: question because, I, I don't know if you know this, but our recipes change 100% every week. So every single week we come out with 10 new recipes, and I've been a customer of the company since the first week we've uh, shit, product that I'm cooking, you know, almost every week with Blue Apron, and so I must have cooked hundreds of recipes at this point. Um, you know, one of the ones that was really memorable to me was one of the early ones we did in our first week or two. We did a miso cod with uh, sugar snap peas and a, a lime beer block sauce, which was really awesome because I had always loved miso cod but never cooked it on my, you know, cooked with miso at home before that. Um, you know, that was a really fun and memorable experience for me also because it was so early on in the company. Um, you know, we did a, uh, a pork buns dish, uh, you know, with like really authentic style um, pork buns you might get in a high-end, uh, you know, uh, Asian restaurant, uh, which was an amazing and fun dish. Uh, you know, we did a, a, a hanger steak with smashed plantains, and I had never cooked with plantains before, um, so that was a really fun one for me. Um, you know, it's it's really all over the board and, and the you know one of the, the key parts of our business is actually not using the same content over and over. It's constantly having new content. And so you don't you know you might have favorites, um, but you're not cooking them over and over again. You're actually always trying new things. And so um you know that's actually one of the key benefits of our product.
0: Awesome. So it sounds like you know, like I'm a parent, I got two kids, I need to love them both equally. It sounds like you love all of your all of your recipes equally. I would say perfectly equally. <laughs> but you don't tell which one is the favorite. Like, you can't do that, I don't think. Maybe for a recipe, you can. <laughs> uh, all right, so our audience is uh, executives. Give us, what, like, the one key lesson. If you could only tell, you know, you have a friend who's about to start a company and says, hey, what's the one biggest thing that you've learned for your, from your experience so far?
1: That's that's a tough question. Um, You know, obviously it depends on what the challenges are of the business, but I would say at the highest level, you know, when when you're starting a company, um, obviously nobody has all the skill sets you need to start a company from scratch. You know, it's something that hasn't been done before. And so there are skill sets you need to bring to the table around yourself. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I had done really early on is recruiting people with skill sets that are very different than mine um, to make sure, you know, we had, Access to you know varying types of thought and varying experience. You know. Yeah. To,
0: tell us to, more about that. You actually. So I think you had two co-founders, and one was a chef, and one was an engineer. Is that is that right? Do I have that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Now, you know, to be honest, it was very deliberate that the three of us started the business together because you know my background was primarily on the business side. Um, Ilya's background was on the engineering side, and Matt's background was as a, was as a private chef and, a, and and he had his own catering business. And so, um, you know. The three of us uh, you know, really complemented each other well. And when you're starting a company um, you know, and you don't have all the answers, that's helpful. And it's also helpful when you're starting a company and you need to move really fast to be able to trust different people to make different decisions. Um, and so you know, I think that that worked really, really well for us. And every business is different, of course, so there's no one generalized rule, but, uh, you know, that's something I would recommend.
0: How, and was that sort of a deliberate thing where you said, hey, I have this interesting idea for a company and I'm going to go find somebody who's strong on the technical side and I'm going to go find somebody who, you know, has the chef and the catering experience or, or did you guys all happen to be friends and then because the three of you had been hanging out for for a while that, that naturally the three of you would come up with an idea like this? Like what, how, was it, how much of it was sort of, you know, which way did it go? Yeah, well, you know, so I had always wanted to
1: start a company my whole career,
0: and Ely and I had
1: become friends, Um, and I knew I wanted to, you know, and Ely knew he wanted to start a company in technology, and so the two of us sort of naturally paired up as he had the engineering and technical side, and I I had a business background, and then the two of us together came up with the idea for Blue Apron, Um, and so when we knew we wanted to start Blue Apron, we reached out to Matt, who is just, you know, was a close friend of mine, and it was a natural fit to be our third co-founder because obviously uh, he had quite a bit of experience on food side of things.
0: Got it. Okay, cool. That's very, very interesting. I think a lot of times people, when they go to start a business, they find their closest friend that tends to be someone really similar to themselves, and I think this is a great you know case that shows sort of you, what you really want to do is have the diversity of kind of opinions. Yeah, I would say defini- founding teams. You, yeah.
1: you definitively don't want to just go find your closest friend, and you definitively don't want you know to find somebody who has the same background as you.
0: Yeah, I think, that, I think that diversity of the early team is super important. Awesome. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was really great to have you. Thanks for having me. This was fun. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Growth Show. You can find all the previous episodes on iTunes. Just search for The Growth Show. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love to get a nice five-star review. If not, please let us know on Twitter or any other means you want uh, what we can do to improve. And we do actually want to learn a lot more from our listeners. We've done uh, about a dozen episodes now. And we want to hear what you have to say about the show. So we have a survey at bit.ly slash growthshowsurvey. That's bit.ly slash growthshowsurvey. That we'd love it if you quickly filled that out. It's only a few questions. You can do it on your mobile. uh, And we'd love to know more from you about what we can do to make the show even better. Thanks a ton for listening. And we'll talk to you again soon. What we normally do is run about 25, 30 minutes. We try to keep it pretty conversational, so feel free to interrupt me. I may interrupt you. Um, it's two, you know, two folks having a chat over a beer or a coffee and just talking about how to grow a business. Um, we can, if something goes horribly wrong, we can edit it. We probably only edit about mm, 10, 20 percent of the shows that we do, just because something does go horribly wrong. So normally, we just kind of record straight through. Um, so don't, so basically, so don't have, don't have too much fear, basically.
1: Yeah, well, what things go
0: horribly wrong in twenty percent of your shows? <laughs> you know, um, so one like Skype totally crapped out on us. It's usually things like that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you guys are sure on that? Because I'm, I'm sorry, I'm talking to the guys in the booth now. Um, I'm getting like a, like a like a like an airplaneish kind of background. Although not anymore, just kind of went away. I don't know. Maybe is your office like right next to an airport? No. <laughs> In a world where growth can only be supplanted by more growth, what are you going to do?